what a blessing it is just to be able to open his word. Just look at it. No consequences and, and marvel in the freedom that we have in Christ. It's, um, it's a real privilege and I think that that prayer and that letter puts it a little bit in perspective. So let's, why don't we just pray for the, what we're going to look at today. It's Galatians 3, uh, verses 1 to 14. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to get some. There's a few over there. Um, we're going to be pouring through um, a bit of text here, moving through verses 1 to 14, and um, there's a few complicated things to work through. So it would be good if you've got it in front of you and we can journey it through together. So I might just open in prayer and then you can put your hand up if you need a Bible and we'll go from there. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can open it, we can look at it, and we can absorb what you are telling us here and now today. Lord, we thank you that this letter of Galatians was written so long ago, but it applies equally to us here and now. Lord, this wasn't just, um, it doesn't just deal with issues that were unique to the Galatian church. They're issues which uh, are common to us here and now as well. Lord, we pray that we'll look at it with open minds and hearts. Uh, and we'll be really seeking out your spiritual wisdom uh, in terms of how it applies to us and what we need to do to live in light of the freedom that we have in Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so chuck the hands up in the air if you need a Bible and um, people will be able to deliver them to you shortly. Galatians 3, you can turn to. Now, as I reflected on today's passage, my mind was taken back to a gift that I received when I was a lot younger, maybe 10, 11, 12 years old, something like that. And it was for one of my birthdays and I was given what was known at the time as a sound blaster. Now, does anyone here know what a sound blaster is? Oh, all the older folk, awesome. I am showing my age because we're talking about early 90s computer technology here. Uh, it was actually a set of speakers and a bit of software that you could plug into com- your computer and all of a sudden you'd get this hugely amplified noise, you'd get all these new sound effects and it would make your computer games come to life, or life as it existed in the early 90s, rather than just relying on these distorted noises that would come out of that little inbuilt speaker that was in your desktop unit. And at the time it was an awesome present. It suddenly gave my computer games and my computer generally this new lease on life. The problem was, at the time I received it from my sister, who was going out with a computer guru at the time, it came in a pretty simple little box and it just had the word sound blaster on it. I didn't know what a sound blaster was. I didn't know what it did and I truly didn't appreciate that all of a sudden this little box had a wonder toy that was going to bring all my computer games into this whole new existence. So being 10, 11, 12, whatever I was, I wasn't exactly refined at the ability to hide what was going through your head uh, and the confusion that was clearly going through my mind at this point. And I simply said something along the lines of, uh, thanks, I guess. <laughs> Which I'm pretty sure wasn't exactly the response that my sister was after for what was a pretty expensive present at the time. Now, how does that relate to Galatians 3? Well, I think there are some gifts in life you don't really appreciate first when you first receive them. There are some gifts in life which need a bit of explanation. You need to experience them for yourself before you really get a sense of its true value. And here in Galatians 3, Paul is reminding the church that they have been given the greatest gift of all time. They have been given a faith in Jesus Christ. This was an amazing gift. But the church needed a little bit of explanation. They needed to understand and experience it for themselves in order for it to redirect their lives accordingly. In particular, they needed some explanation as to why this gift of a faith in Jesus Christ would offer them so much more than their works or obedience of the law ever could. 
So Paul seeks to unpack this gift for the Galatian church in chapter 3 by reminding them first and foremost that the Christian life is centred on faith. It is absolutely founded and based and centred on faith, not works. And as a result of that, through this incredible gift of faith, we have both righteousness, being a right standing before God, and we have redemption, meaning that we have been set free in Christ from the bondage of the law. So let's make our way through the text this morning. It's a bit of a complicated passage with a lot of Old Testament quotes, but hopefully as we journey through it together, we can make some sense of it. Galatians 3. I'm just going to start by reading verse 1. It says, You foolish Galatians. I'm reading from the NIV, so your versions might be different, but bear with me. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed as crucified. Now, just pause there for a second. It's not all that often you get to start a talk with the author calling its reader both foolish and bewitched. But that's where we start at the beginning of chapter 3. It shows that in Paul's eyes, even before we go any further, the church is clearly missing something of importance. They're missing something in a foolish way. And they haven't just been foolish, they've been bewitched, which has the sense of them being deceived by someone's lies or false teaching. So in Paul's eyes, they have been exposed to this truth, but they have foolishly been deceived into moving away from it or ignoring it or otherwise denying it. Now what exactly that truth is will be brought out as we work through today's passage. But before he goes there, he tries to further grab their attention by saying, you haven't just been exposed to this truth, you have seen evidence of it for yourself. You have seen or heard yourself about the public execution of Jesus Christ, the fact that he was crucified. That was evidence of this truth. Now he doesn't go into detail about what that sacrifice meant at this point, but he gives them a very clear introductory message that the death of Jesus Christ that they have witnessed or otherwise heard about didn't occur for no reason. It was evidence of a truth that has since been shared with you but which you are foolishly being deceived into moving away or ignoring it. And it's from that point that Paul starts his reminder of what exactly this truth is and what exactly was achieved by Jesus Christ on the cross. So let's move on. If we read through verses 2 through 5, we're just going to work our way gradually through the passage. I think sometimes if you read it as a slab, you can, you can lose a little bit along the way. Verse 2 says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? In this section, Paul makes his point by posing a series of rhetorical questions to them. They're rhetorical because the answers are meant to speak for themselves. And the most fundamental of these we find in verse 2, where he says, Did you receive the Spirit, which of course happens at that point of salvation, so you could say, were you saved because of what you believed or by works of the law? Were you saved by faith or by works? Now again, it's rhetorical because the answer is meant to be obvious. It's by faith. It's by faith that we're saved. I read in John 3.16, 
For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's about belief and faith. And we can talk specifically about the Spirit if we move to Ephesians 1.13 where it says, Paul said to the Ephesian church, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation and having believed, you were, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. It's clearly an issue of faith here. Our salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit is always a consequence of our faith. It's not by works so that we can't have some claim to have deserved it ourselves. And I love the follow-up question in verse 3. It says, are you so foolish? It's like, are you so crazy to actually get this answer wrong and assume you were saved by works? And then he extends his argument past the point of salvation to their ongoing walk and life as a Christian. And he says, if you began, if you began through faith, are you now going to be perfected or are you going to continue on in works? If you started one way, at what point does it suddenly change to works? And it seems the Galatian church were actually suffering a little bit for this theology around faith. And so it says, if you suffered these things, did you do it in vain? And in the final one, in verse 5, Paul asks, if does God work miracles? Does he do things amongst you in response to what you're doing, your works, or in response to your faith? All of these answers are intended to gear towards the same point and they're all rhetorical because they're all meant to be obvious. It's about faith. We are saved through faith and from that point of salvation onwards, it's always about faith. We live a life of faith, not works. See, Paul is establishing here a core truth which he claims the Galatian church has foolishly moved away from, that the Christian life is centred on faith not works. It's centred on faith. It starts with faith and it continues on in faith all the way until we meet Jesus again in glory. Now that all sounds fine in theory, doesn't it? And it's easy to stand up here and say how foolish those Galatians must have been for focusing on works, not faith. But the reality is we can make the same mistakes today in a different form. You see, the Galatian church hadn't forgotten about Jesus and the crucifixion. They didn't deny that it was relevant. But what they'd done is they'd created a kind of hybrid theology where Jesus and the cross and faith, that was all relevant and important for salvation, but so were various other things. So was your lineage back to Abraham, the father of their people. So was your obedience of the law. So were certain other traditions such as circumcision. And so what you have is this hybrid theology where it's Jesus is important but so are all these other components. Your salvation is made up of a mix of these things. Now here at Canterbury Gardens, our genetic line back to Abraham isn't as much of a focus for us. Similarly, our finer points of the Levitical laws is not that high on our radar of things to stay on top of. But we can't pretend this hybrid theology doesn't exist. It just looks different, doesn't it? takes a different form. It looks a little bit more like faith in Jesus plus Sunday morning attendance plus baptism plus ministry involvement plus a membership application plus appropriate dress plus a familiar surname plus an ability to pray confidently in public, plus Christian kids and family, 
plus the right lingo and use of biblical expressions equals salvation. Now you can add whatever pluses you want to that picture because it's not the pluses that are the key point, it's the substance behind them. We might not like to acknowledge it. It might be a little uncomfortable dealing with it, but we would be, to use Paul's words, a foolish church to ignore it. The reality is that this faith in Jesus plus theology is easy for us to fall into, both as individuals, as we think about our own faith personally, and as we think about other people's faith, and also more importantly and collectively as a congregation. See, all those other things like church and ministry involvement, the way we live, what we say and do, they're all good things. They're all part of living out our faith. They're all an expression of our faith. But they are never a supplementary requirement or substitution for the cross and our faith in Jesus Christ. They're a flow-on effect of our faith, but they're never a supplementary requirement or a replacement of what Jesus did on the cross because the Christian life is centred on what? Faith. This is the key principle that Paul establishes here right at the outset of chapter 3 and he unpacks it more as we work through today's text through the remainder of the section. And as he fleshes out why this faith in Jesus Christ is such a precious gift, why it's such an incredible gift that needs a bit of explanation so we can really understand it and experience it for ourselves and the fact that this gift offers more than our works and our deserved righteousness ever, ever could. So let's read on. We then hit a section where he uses Abraham as an example of this principle. It says in verse 6, Abraham believed God, he's quoting from the Old Testament here, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In verse 7, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now in, this, in verse 6, as I said, Paul uses Abraham as an example to explain why the Christian life is and must be based on faith because our standing before God relates purely to our faith and not anything that we do of our own. He quotes, as I said, from Genesis 15.6 right back in verse 6 where he, makes, where he draws out this idea that Abraham, it says, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Therefore, Abraham's righteousness, in other words, his right standing before God, was clearly linked with his faith rather than anything he did. It was linked to what he believed. It was linked to his faith in God and what God had promised him rather than the way he had lived his life or anything he subsequently did. Now, we'll unpack that more in a moment. But what Paul then does in verse 7 is he says that those who are similarly of faith are considered children of Abraham. Now, this is a significant point because as I flagged already, the Jewish people put a lot of importance on their lineage back to Abraham, the father of their faith, the father of their uh, people. Their standing before God was inherently linked to their family tree and their ancestry back to Abraham. Therefore, if you could link your family tree back to Abraham, you were considered a child of Abraham, but more importantly, therefore, you were a child of God. You were part of God's family. 
However, Paul's saying here that being a child of God and being part of God's family, in his eyes, has nothing to do with genetics. John the Baptist dealt with this issue head on in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, where he said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're the, the teachers of the law of the day, people who put such a high importance of their lineage back to Abraham, he spoke to them and said this, Do not suppose you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. He's saying that to people who would argue the point that Abraham is exactly who their father was because it linked all the way back. But, but John the Baptist said to them, don't suppose that you can claim Abraham as your father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children of Abraham. It's a strange comment, isn't it? From these stones God can raise up children of Abraham. Now stones generally don't have a family tree. But he's drawing out the point here that there's clearly another type of child of Abraham that matters before God. It's not about genetics, it's about something else that's important. And that's the point which Paul is now fleshing out here that those who have faith, those who have the same sort of faith, they're the ones who are going to be considered children of Abraham. They are a spiritual child of Abraham. They're the true children of Abraham. They're the ones who are truly part of God's family. It's got nothing to do with your family tree. It's a question of faith and whether you demonstrate the same faith which Abraham demonstrated even back in the Old Testament where it says he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now this concept doesn't really make a whole lot of sense until we really flesh out what exactly the faith was that Abraham held. See, in verse 8, Paul makes it clear that the gospel was announced, it says, in advance to Abraham, where God said to him, all nations will be blessed through you. In other words, God told Abraham that through his line of descendants, someone would come. A Messiah would come who would provide a blessing to all of the nations, both Jew and Gentile alike. One Saviour would come for the salvation of all. A promise that was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ on the cross. Now Abraham may not have understood that fully at the time. That's a lot to process. But he nevertheless had faith in the fact that God would bring, from, would bring descendants from his name and that through his descendants the nations will be blessed. And scripture says he had faith in that. And it was his faith in that that was credited to him as righteousness. It was his faith that gave him a right standing before God. Now this is in the backdrop for verse 9 where it says that those who similarly rely on faith are blessed with Abraham. Those who, you see, the fullness of this promise has now been made clear to us through Jesus Christ. So those who stand here and believe that Jesus Christ came as the fulfilment of this promise, as our Saviour and Messiah, that he died on the cross for our sins and that through him we can be blessed, both Jew and Gentile alike. Those who believe and have faith in that promise are blessed with Abraham. We stand righteous. We have a right standing before God because of what Jesus did on the cross. Our sin and shortcomings are forgiven and we are given a right standing before God. We are deemed righteous. Now that's a crash course in some theology for us and I think we need to pause and get our head around that principle for a moment. Even though we are a desperately wicked and sinful people, 
even though we continue to fall short of, of, of God's standard daily, even though scriptures make it clear there's no one righteous among us, not even one, despite all those things when we have faith in Jesus Christ that he was fulfilled, the fulfilment of God's promise that he came to save all of us from the death that we deserved by dying on the cross, when we hold that to be true in our heart, despite our unrighteousness, we are deemed righteous in God's eyes because Christ was righteous. What a God we serve. As it says in Romans, he was, who was without sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Is it because of what we've done that we're righteous? Of course not. Is it because of my incredible Christian resume that I'm righteous? Of course not. Is it because of the size of our church or our ministry involvement that we're righteous? Of course not. Is because of Jesus and our faith in the, tr- in the truth that he alone was sent to save us from our sins. That he died the death that we deserved so that we might have life. It's faith in him that deems us righteous. Church, may we never start pinning our hopes on our righteousness rather than Christ's righteousness. We can never afford to take our eyes off the cross such that all of a sudden the important thing in our eyes is our ministry involvement, our, our leadership positions or our theological expertise. None of those things are bad, but they won't make us righteous. Only Christ can do that, for he's all that matters. Anything else we do, we do because we love him. We do because he died for us. So we want to live our life for him. We do out of worship for him. But we don't do it to earn any favour in God's eyes or to earn any sort of right standing before him. As soon as our focus switches to that, it all becomes meaningless. For all he cares about is faith. We're saved by faith. We live by faith. when we start to process this truth that our right standing before God is purely to do with Jesus Christ as our Saviour, how desperate should our desire be to know him more and to make him known to others? You see, culturally, we live in a world that says, as long as I'm a good person, I'll be okay. As long as I do good things and be a, live a fairly moral existence, then I'll be fine. Heaven awaits. But the truth laid out in Scripture couldn't be further from that understanding, could it? The truth laid out in Scripture is that no matter how good we may think we are, no matter how pro- high profile we might be, no matter how incredible my achievements might be, unless Christ is in my heart, I am lost and I am unrighteous. I am an unworthy sinner. Full stop. And the judgment that follows will be a judgment of the unrighteous. With that in mind, don't we need to be on our knees praying daily that God will continually make himself known to us more and more, that he would deepen our faith in him and that he would move us to make that faith known to others so that Christ's righteousness is real to us but that we want to share that righteousness with those around us.
so that they can know the miracle of the gospel. That through him we move from death to life. We move from sin to forgiveness. We move from slavery to freedom. We move from unrighteous to righteous because of Jesus Christ. May God always ensure that we are resting on Christ's righteousness, not our own. And that we are dedicated to making that righteousness known to those around us. Now let's keep moving through. I'm going to read verse 10 through the first half of verse 11. It says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. I apologize. It's a heavy talk this morning. I'm sorry. I feel like it's weighty and I feel the burden that's on here, but this is what's here. And this, this, I think as we move through the text, you'll see we get to the freedom, we get to the joy, we get to the love, but at the moment we're still in the curse. <laughs> For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God. In these verses, Paul makes it clear that those who rely on the law to try and achieve this kind of righteousness we've been talking about are destined for failure. In fact, he says that all such people are cursed because the biblical standard is perfection. He quotes from Deuteronomy 27.26 to say that cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book is not continuing to do an aspect of what's written in the book, is not continuing to do majority or a fair part or not making a good effort to do what's in the book. It's he who doesn't do everything that's in the book is under a curse. Cursed in the sense we stand subject to God's wrath, cursed in the sense we subject ourselves to his judgment and cursed in the sense we are unable to make atonement for that on our own. No matter how hard we try to make up for those mistakes, we can't get there on our own. Therefore, Paul's point is that because God's standard is perfection, all who rely on the law for a right standing before God, all who rely on their own works and their abilities and their achievements to have a good standing before God, now stand subject to God's judgment. For no one has achieved perfection, so he says no one is justified before God under the law. And we know this to be true in our own hearts, don't we? It sounds harsh, but we don't need to make much of a self-assessment of our own heart to see the the greed and the pride and the envy and the bitterness and the conflict that's in here. We don't need to look too hard to find it. So if our standing before God was linked to what we did and who we were, what hope would we have? Paul says none. None we would all fall short. We would all stand subject to his wrath. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, there is not a righteous man on earth who continues to do good and never sins. Perfection is simply not the standard any of us are capable of achieving. But what I love about Paul's letters and the Bible more generally, this is where I say we're getting, to the, we're getting to the more freeing part here, is we're never left in this hopelessness for very long. 
Whenever we were reminded of the darkness of our sinful nature and our inherent shortcomings before God, we are always pointed to the love and the grace and the mercy that we see in Jesus Christ on the cross. And the next few verses take us straight back to that cross. They take us straight back to where we started in verse 1 where Paul says, you've seen evidence of this in the crucifixion of our Lord. Let's read on in verse 11. It says, Because no one's justified by the law, the righteous will live by faith. In verse 12, The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. But Christ redeemed us. If you're an underliner, underline that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. In the second half, verse 11, he reminds us that since no one's justified by law, the righteous live by faith. This is what we've talked about so far. It's a quote from Habakkuk 2.4 which is intended to bring the readers back to the point that a right standing before God may not be attainable by what we do, but it is attainable through Christ. It's only attainable through Christ. And so the righteous live by faith in Jesus Christ because he was righteous. He succeeded where we failed. And he goes on to say in verse 13 that through this faith we are redeemed. We are redeemed from the curse of the law. Now, what does that term redeemed mean? It means we're set free. It means we're set free from the curse of having to justify ourselves before God. It means we're set free from the stranglehold of having to save ourselves from a to-do list that's humanly unachievable. It means we're set free from having to match up with an unmatchable standard. It means we're set free from the bondage and slavery that was found under the law and that we have today when we tie up our righteousness and our favour and our standing before God based on what we're trying to do. We've been set free. Church, in what ways do we need to claim that freedom for ourselves this morning? It might be that some of us are feeling overcommitted we're feeling weighed down by the things we're involved in. It might be that we're wrapped up in leadership positions and ministry roles and teaching responsibilities and various other church commitments, but they've now taken the form of obligations, millstones around our neck. But we stick with it because we feel we ought to. We feel like, subconsciously perhaps, somehow this will gain me some sort of favour or standing before God. That's why we do it. Galatians 3.13 says we've been redeemed from that. We've been set free from that. We've been set free from the curse of obligation. For God's not interested in our ministry involvement. He's interested in our faith. On the other end of the spectrum, there might be those who feel as, feeling guilty because you're not involved as much as other people. It might be those who are feeling as though my life's a mess and I'm not living the sort of Christian life that other people seem to be living. I'm not attaining that standard. Galatians 3.13 says, 
We've been redeemed from that. We've been set free from the curse of having to feel as though we need to match up with some sort of standard in our own strength. We've been redeemed from the guilt of feeling as though we are continually falling short for God's not interested in our failures either. He's interested in our faith. Church, it's not about all the amazing things we might be doing. And it's not about all the different ways we might be failing. It's simply about what Jesus has done. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? It's not about everything that we could be doing or are doing. It's not about all the ways we're falling short. It's simply about what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and our faith in him. Through his act of grace and mercy on the cross, we are set free from the overwhelming curse of obligation and guilt. We do what we do because we love him. We do what we do as our spiritual act of worship because we serve a saviour who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us on the cross. But we don't do it out of obligation. And we don't do it to earn some sort of standing or favour before God. And what Paul reminds us of in verse 13 is this freedom. It wasn't without a cost. See, the full sense of the word redeemed is not just to be set free, but to be set free for a price, to be bought back or purchased out of something. Therefore, if we're to be truly redeemed, then there must have been a cost attached to this freedom. There must have been a price for which we were bought out from under the law. And that's why in verse 13 we read that we have been redeemed from the curse of the law by Jesus Christ becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus brought us back out of the law and he did so at an astounding price. He did so at the price of his own life on the cross where he bore the curse that we would otherwise have worn. He was cursed on a tree in the shape of a cross where he was brutally executed. The Son of God, beaten, abused and slaughtered for our redemption. He did this for our salvation, so that by faith we could stand before God unashamed, so that by faith we could stand before God with confidence and we could be deemed righteous and we could be saved. That freedom took Jesus to the cross. That was the price that was attached. What an amazing God we serve. Why did God provide us with this sort of grace? It says it in verse 14 says he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham, being a right standing before God, might come to the Gentiles, being us, through Christ Jesus, so that by works, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. We might receive his Holy Spirit and be saved. This is the reason Jesus went to the cross. He did so so that we would be saved, so that we would know the blessing of Abraham, that we would know the righteousness that is only found in Christ, so that we could stand before God with confidence, say, God, I am unrighteous, but Jesus Christ was righteous, and I have faith in him. 
He did it for our salvation. I say it again, what an amazing God we serve. That's why we do what we do. Not because we have to. It's not out of obligation. It's not to earn some sort of favour or justification before God. We do what we do because we love him. Because we want to serve him. Because he loved us so much, he went to the cross. He gave his life for us, so we want to give our life right back and submit ourselves to him. After all, that's what it means to live a life of faith. Everything else is a flow on, but it's never a substitute for faith. Is there any wonder why a Christian life is centred on faith, not works? This is an incredible gift that Paul is trying to explain to the people so they start to really appreciate its true value, so that we can start to appreciate its true value here and now. Because in works we are completely and utterly lost. But through faith in Jesus Christ we are deemed righteous and we're set free. All that needs to be done is done. Price is paid. Righteousness and freedom is ours through Jesus Christ. May we do what we do out of love and thankfulness for our gracious, saving Heavenly Father. And then stand firm in the righteousness and freedom that is freely given to us by his grace. In Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that through faith in Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ alone we can stand before you righteous. Lord, no matter how many ways we might fall short when we believe in you, Lord, we are declared righteous. We have forgiveness. We have love. We have mercy. Lord, and we've been set free from the curse of having to earn that standing on our own, a feat which was humanly unachievable. But Lord, we thank you that we've been set free because Jesus achieved it on the cross. Lord, may we continue to live our lives as lives of faith where we seek to know you and we seek to make you and your righteousness and your freedom and love known to everyone around us so that they too can marvel in the righteousness and redemption and freedom and right standing that we have before you when we submit our lives at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus Christ, I'm yours. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.